Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club podcast, a music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike, along with Mootloo, and producer Molly along for the ride without a hum behind her. <laughs> Do we hear it? Hi. No, no. There, there it is. Smooth, new and improved. Yeah. No hum. High five, Ooh. baby. No hum. Before Molly came on, I was complaining about young people uh, as something I, I, well, I blame young people for everything, but Mootloo was mentioning as soon as we got on, because I had a moment at work earlier this week where one of our hosts who works remotely for the network was having a problem with his setup. Like he connects remotely. He wasn't able to fix something. And I was noting with his producer that he is bad at anything technology wise. And he's about, I don't know, 40, 38, 40. And I had this minor temper tantrum because this is what Mootloo just said he's bad at technology things. <laughs> very bad, very, minor, very bad. Te- minor temper tantrum at work. And I was like, look, if you're anywhere between 18 and 60 and working and working, you're not allowed to be horrible at technology, <laughs> at computers. <laughs> you're not, you're just, I, Moot, I just, I can't, I can't get over. Is it a decision to be bad at it at this point? Or listen, am I really horrible? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I don't let's know. backtrack a little bit here. Okay. Because we, we've been doing the pod for quite some time now. Mm-hmm. Let's not, I'll, I'll say I'm not horrible, but I'm not good. So I'm somewhere mm. in between. You, you know what I'm saying? Hmm. Like, I'm, 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 I'm on the low end of the spectrum of tech savviness. Let's say that. Have you, have you always been that way? Like yeah, I don't know. You never a tech savvy person. I don't know what it is. Yeah, even just simple things like if there's some sort of gadget or something that needs to be fixed, I'm not the guy to fix it. Hmm. You know, yeah. I don't know why. It's not my brain works well for other complex issues, but not for anything tech related. Yeah, hmm. I just I feel like there's this base. You're certainly. I would say you're not helpless, but you would be, do not take offense to this. You would be <laughs> below what I would consider base understanding. Proficient. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. You're, you're, I can talk you through. There are some people that you can't even talk anybody through. Yeah, right? I can understand like, what you're saying. I just can't necessarily <laughs> execute what needs to be executed. <laughs> you know, action. <laughs> Uh, was there something a- early on though where just 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 while we're on this yeah sure there was some situation early on we were doing the pod and I asked you a question and you were just like dumbfounded as to how I even asked that question right 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 but then so, you then you compared me to Howard so I was like okay that's not that bad you were so, kind of like you were kind of like hey this is the kind of question my father asked me about yeah that. Molly so so Howard is my <laughs> father and and my brother has struggled for years he has stopped my father has stopped coming to me for tech related issues because <laughs> because he knows I get too mad at him so he goes to my brother there was one moment that he he asked me to help him at work. We we have a we have a, like a um, a what's it called? A now I can't think of the word. We have an app that is a uh, two step verification app to get into your email and stuff on your phone. You need to have this app on your phone, or you can't get into anything. One protect. Uh, one protect. Yeah, it is a <laughs> is a a two step verification thing. And basically, when you log into your email on the computer, it sends a notification to this app that you have to say on your phone, and you have to say yes, it's me to log in. So. Howard, my father, asked me to help him with it. And as I was trying to do it, 
there were just fucking notifications coming from every app he had. And I realized that he didn't know how to turn off notifications on any of his apps. So it's like, ding, ESPN, ding, Fox Sports, ding, the Weather Channel, ding. And I was like, I, I gave the phone back to him. And I was like, how the fuck do you even operate this thing? Like, that's why you can't get one. one. So I, I believe what Mutlu did, which my father does do, is use the word download incorrectly. In that saying, like something to the effect of, yeah, I, 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 like you use download it when you're not actually downloading anything. I remember I what it was. I remember okay. what it was. Okay. <laughs> it was one of the first times, one of the first handful of times I went on uh, WIP as Tommy from Down the Shore. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's like this uh, character. I think, we, Molly, we were talking about it like last week. Uh, Amos and I have these characters, Tony T and Tommy from Down the Shore. They're like a parody of, well, he's got the puppet. I'll I'll hopefully have the puppet in time. But even pre-puppet, we had created these characters. Yep. And uh, and they're kind of like a parody of like Philly Sports Talk callers. Yeah. Uh, So my character is actually a pretty well-known caller now on the big sports talk station that Spike used to be the program director for. But what it was was it was one of the first times I went on there Mm-hmm. And I think Jack at one previously had sent me like a clip of my, like a video clip of my appearance. Yes. And I had no clue how to do that. So then I asked you on the next appearance if you could send it to me. Right. And you oh, were right, like, right. what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Like, <laughs> <laughs> basically, but I still don't know how to do that. See, see, for example, I still don't know how to do that. You don't know how to... Go to your appearance, or or well, do like a like if you have if you have phone. like a like something on say the Odyssey app or any yeah like streaming thing, and you do a video clip that's the sound snippet. The only way I would know how to do is to take another phone and film it on that phone. Yeah, so you can do a screen <laughs> she's, recording. She's cracking up. Of Mulu by his second phone, so he can do screen recording. Yeah, I need I need I need the second one. Well, that's by the way, by the way, no offense, and then we'll get into the music because this is a music appreciation podcast. <laughs> that my father when he is putting clips out on Twitter of press conferences, video press conferences, it is his phone filming his computer. Like that's what he's doing. So there <laughs> is like a Howard similarity there. So that's what sparked it because yes. I, yeah. So it, just out of curiosity, how do you do that? Just real quick, do, you, do we not have time to go through that right now? No, no, no. Okay, do you have your iPhone close to you? <laughs> yeah, I have it, yeah. Okay, is it locked? No, it's it's unlocked. That oh, well, that lock, kind of lock. stuff. I'm 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 a step beyond that kind of. Well, stuff. No, no, no. Lock it. Lock it for a second. Oh, lock, lock it. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just just uh, take yeah. a lock. So, okay. So, do you know how to like pull down from the right corner to get like this? this yeah, screen? sure. Yeah, I, I know okay, how to do so, that. Yeah. So do that. Okay. Pull do down it. from the right. Right. <laughs> okay. So in the bottom left hand corner, do you see a thing that looks like a little record button? Oh yeah! Wait, um, wait. Which one is that? It's like a little circle with another circle on the inside of it. Looks like a, a record button. It's just not red. It's what a record uh, button looks like. Like that guy. You see it? Oh wait, how come I I don't see that on mine? Are you sure? Um, it, yeah. Wait. Look. See. Take a look. It's not. Can you guys uh, see? Yeah. It's not there. See that? So I can't even do it. See, I was right. Well, I don't. It, I can't do it. When was okay? And then we'll, <laughs> we'll move on. When was the last time you updated your operating system on your iPhone? Uh, not 
Well, it's been a little while, but not that long okay. ago. Okay. And what iPhone is it? A seven. Ooh. Maybe that's why, see? That Maybe you can't on a seven. See, it's yeah. not my technical knowledge. <laughs> it's my equipment. It's, it's, so that's it. That's my excuse. You, you might have a, an exception on that one. Right. Yeah. You so might, there you is might a way to do it, but not with this version of the iPhone. Yeah. I think you might need a new iPhone. Okay. To do it's it. probably Just time. Yeah. Yeah. How does, does your battery still stay charged with a seven? I mean, how old is that? Like five years? Uh, yeah, not not like it maybe like it should, as well okay. as it should. Actually, There's a lot of charging. There's a lot of constant charging going on. So I, I I'm actually we're on the we're on the opposite sides of the spectrum, and I think we're both wrong. You haven't replaced your iPhone in in like six years or something. I'm the dumb fuck that like every time there's a new iPhone because I'm on that payment plan thing and I can upgrade after a year, I'll go, yeah, I'll upgrade to the new iPhone. And I'm so fucking excited to get the new iPhone and the new iPhone comes in the mail and I upload my thing, like, you know, my, my profile. So, and then as soon as it's loaded up, I'm like, well, it's exactly the same as the other iPhone. <laughs> Guess I'll text. <laughs> like, like that's all, that's all I do on it anyway. So they tell me the pictures are better, but who knows really? Who knows? All right. So what is it? 13 now? It's like the 13th yeah, model I'm now. 13. 13, oh wow! Thirteen. Yeah. Are oh, you not? You're not. What are no, you? I have the eleven still. Oh, see, but it's probably exactly the same. If you replace mine with an eleven, I don't even know that I could tell the difference. Probably not. No. Up until a while ago, my dad had like the three or something. He had he had one that was like couldn't even. <laughs> it really didn't function at all. Three. <laughs> it was like it was it was like absurdly far back to where like nothing worked on it. And he looked like Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell had the yeah, giant it, cell phone. Exactly. All right. We are a music appreciation <laughs> podcast. Our oh, our intro music is from Marion Hill, who just canceled their their tour. By the yeah, way, yeah, I was sorry I, to I see that. Know, sorry uh, to see that. Hope everything's going okay in Marion Hill land. We typically on an episode do talk about two separate albums. The idea of the pod is to turn you and turn each other onto music that either we don't know about or haven't listened to in a long time. And we enjoy the album format to get out of the, the Spotify and Apple music algorithms that feed you some of the same things that you already like. So we take listener suggestions for every pod and we pick an album every pod. So it's my week. My album is Def Leppard's Hysteria, which came out in 1987. And listener album comes from Apple podcast user music lover JMT. It is Eric Church's Chief, which came out in 2011. His review says, how much do I love the pod? Enough that I was willing to sell my ticket to go see Eric Church at Madison Square Garden below face value to see you guys do it live at Mootloo's show. Oh, oh man! Really, yeah. Well, well. Oh, thank you, and come back in November. Right, he says. Unluckily, I don't have to make that choice anymore. But would love to hear you discuss Eric Church's chief album on the pod. Although I was one of those quote everything but country music listeners for a long time, that changed about a decade ago, and Eric Church quickly became a favorite of his catalog. Chief is the one I love the most, probably for sentimental reasons more than anything. Interested to hear your takes on it. I think we did our album last time, so why don't we do listener album first this time? Yeah, is that cool? uh, Eric right. Church, and I think this is the first like country. straight ahead modern country thing we've done. Yeah, not one of those bullshit alt country, whatever the fuck that is, or yeah, or even I would yeah. say like, well, that's a good way to get into it because I I love like the classic country, like I don't know Carter mm -hmm. Family or uh, Willie Nelson, Patsy Cline, Johnny Cash, all that kind of stuff. Right. I'm not as into the contemporary country, I would have to say. Oh, 
didn't we do on a very early episode? No, actually, that there was a country album when Carl Andrew Record Club was a Rights to Ricky Sanchez segment. And it was a female artist. And I will, as you're, you're talking, I will find it. But yeah, this is the first straight up country that we've done on this one. And I think so, there have been a few artists on the music clubs that we've done with Jason Nayu. Just uh, a single, like a standalone. There was one artist I remember that hmm. AU brought. Oh, yes. It's actually a really good song. I forget the artist's name now. But, yes. Um, Another, I believe it was female as well. Yes. Actually, now that and that was say. actually a great tune. Yep. All right. So who's Eric Church? I got a reputation. So Eric Church, now he's an artist I've heard of, been aware of, but never really listened to until now. Probably one of the biggest country stars out there working these days. Give a little backdrop on him. He's originally from Granite Falls, North Carolina. When he was 13, he bought his first guitar and started writing songs. He started pretty young. By the time he was a senior in high school, he was playing local bars, doing a lot of Jimmy Buffett covers, and I guess I can kind of hear the the Jimmy Buffett thread in his music. Sure. I can definitely hear it there. Yeah. You know, uh, and he was also doing some originals. Now, this is interesting to read about because when he first started performing, some of the bars he played were kind of a rough scene. Apparently, there were a number of occasions where he got into physical altercations from the stage with the audience, like, you know, fist fights broke out. So that's a... There's, it sounds fake, well, I don't. That's what I read. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it's, it's just, made up. It sounds like something from a country music video, doesn't it? Right. Or uh, see, I don't know. I mean, you never know. I mean, sometimes you got to create the story to create yeah. the hype. So or a stylized sort of like biopic on him, like sort of like yeah, a, you can you see it in I mean? the movie. You know, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like a montage of him getting into fights in different shows. Like, Everybody's wearing cowboy hats and. Yeah, and, and cowboy boots and all that. Kind At of one stuff. point, he jumps off the stage and tackles somebody. Another yeah. point, he gets tackled. Yeah, it sounds like a and, Patrick Swayze know. movie, honestly. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, let's it's, assume it's for real, but okay. hard to know right. for sure. All right, for sure. So he played this rough and tumble scene around North Carolina for a number of years. Eventually, after graduating from Appalachian State, he moved to Nashville, and like a lot of big country stars, he started out writing or co-writing songs with other artists. Uh, in 2005, he co-wrote Terry Clark's single, The World Needs a Drink. Hmm. And uh, also which, that same again, year. Yeah, The World Needs a Drink, I, again. <laughs> doesn't seem real? I think that's real. real. Yeah, I think, yeah, no, yeah. I think that's real. Okay, yeah, I, I believe it. I'm just saying, I'm not saying The bar fights, I understand. I, I can see the bar fights, maybe yeah. not. But, okay, all right. But that's a, And also, that same year, he co-wrote Dean Miller's Whiskey Wing. Is another song. <laughs> I knew I knew you were gonna. I'm right. I was curious to see your reaction to this. Was to this backdrop. Was the next one intro. he wrote about a pickup truck? Well, I mean, well, funny you, you should say, yeah, right. Funny you should say, not about a pickup truck, but there are. Okay, I'll say this about this album: there are a number of songs that almost seem like they're sort of the basis of the stereotype of that those kind of songs like for that. sure yep you know but maybe you could look at it he's like one of the prototypes yeah yeah for sure in a sense so 
Uh, he was writing for other artists, but mainly focused on doing his own thing. He started working with different producers. Right out of the gate, Capital Nashville was interested in him. But it wasn't until he started working with the producer, Jay Joyce, that they got fully on board. Now, Jay Joyce is a well-known, highly respected, prolific producer, songwriter, you know, and multi-instrumentalist. I mean, he's worked with a wide range of artists, including the Wallflowers, Emmylou Harris, Zach Brown. Mm. He produced our pal Amos Lee's Mountains of Sorrow Rivers, a song album, which is one of his best. So Jay Joyce is, he's one of the more prominent producers in Nashville, not just doing country, doing a wide range of styles, but... From early on, that was a strong collaboration that he had with Jay Joyce, and he produced this record, Chief, as well. Debut record, Sinners Like Me, comes out in 2006. Right away, big commercial success. He had three top 20 country hits. Now, here's an interesting story. Mm -hmm. As his career was taken off behind that record, he toured as a support act for Brad Paisley and Rascal Flatts. Okay. But he was ultimately fired from that tour because he kept going over his allotted time. Every uh-huh. single night. Huh. And that's that's a violation. I mean, that's something... Right. That's a music industry rule. You don't do that. Like, Well, especially because there's a lot... Of, first of all, it's just respect for the people that you're yeah, opening for. Yeah, it's just for. a respect thing, yeah. But there's a lot of places that have... And I imagine that tour was big enough where a lot of places have curfews where the show right. has to end by a certain point. So it's timed out for a, a certain way. And if you're going on, if the curfew was say 11, which is a lot of a lot of places, opening act goes on at 7.30, over by eight, next act goes on at eight, you know, all that. So you go over by 10 minutes, that's coming out of somebody else's time, basically. Right. I mean, right. it's just on any level, you just don't do it. But especially, like you said, like when there's curfews and... It's a package tour. You're actually undercutting the headliners by doing yeah, that. for sure. So he gets fired from that tour. As fate had it, his replacement was none other than Taylor Swift. Oh, really? Oh Just God. as her career was taking off. How about This it? was a big tour for her, a big break for her. And apparently she and Eric Church had a conversation around that time. He told her he thought she would thrive on the tour. He was very encouraging. And then he joked that, when she got her first gold record, she should, you know, send it to him as a thank you because that tour was pretty monumental, apparently, for her. Wow. How about that? Worked out for both of them. For both like. of them, in a way. Yeah. yeah, it didn't seem like it phased him too much. Yeah. And actually, Taylor Swift did later give him her first gold record with a note attached that said, thanks for playing too long and too loud on the <laughs> Flats tour. I sincerely appreciate it, Taylor. That's pretty awesome. How about yeah, that? Yeah, so big, big turning point uh, for her. Didn't phase him. His second album, Carolina, was another big hit. And then this one came out in 2011, Chief. This is, seems to be the record that made him like a like a pop country superstar. I mean, mm-hmm. huge commercial success. And then, you know, in the years since then, he's done four more albums. Unquestionably one of the biggest and most enduring country stars. I mean, hit albums, singles, successful tours. He's a regular at award shows. But this was the one that I think made him a superstar. I mean, this record... Debuted at number one on Billboard and the Top Country albums. Wow. How and it had that? five Top Country hit, 20 Country hits, including two number ones. Country so, music is fucking, is 
most of the country loves fucking country music. Yeah. You live in like our area, like you live in New York City or Philly or LA or something. You don't see it. It doesn't doesn't feel like it's the biggest thing in the world. But like everything west of Philadelphia and everything east of Los Angeles almost is like, is this world where this music is still sells CDs, Yep. Sells out fucking, you know, arenas and stadiums. Stadiums. In a, lot of places. a lot of these tours are stadium tours. Yep. And and actually what's interesting is even in the big metropolitan areas where you don't see country that much, they still play those venues because the people right outside that area all love this music. You know, like it is enormous. It's really like the last mass appeal music where sort of this size of an audience all likes it. This and like the biggest pop songs in the world, but country music is so enormous, you know, which is why know it if you live where we live. Right. Which is also why I think some people go to Nashville with the sheer intention of just writing hits like, yep. And it's very competitive. It's very difficult to break in that. But if you do break into it, it can be pretty massive, you know, it can be a pretty lucrative source of income and a way to kind of just break into the business. So, because yep. a lot of these songs are co-writes or songs written by other songwriters. Country songwriting is a very collaborative medium. I mean, you know, you hear about these guys who write, like they collaborate with three, four different people a day. They're just cranking out tunes. But sort of one like thing hip hop in that way. Hip hop Yes, absolutely. There's definitely a parallel there. The very collaborative nature of it. And, and by the way, like the reason this is why Nashville has sort of become the new music center point in the country. I would say as much, if not more than LA or New York is because of all of the country music that comes out of there. It's, it's become more of like a music centerpiece instead of just a country centerpiece, I think. Right. And And what's happened is it's created an economy there where it's spilled over into other genres. I mean, there's, there's a lot happening beyond country, but I think it's vibrant in that way, or there's a lot going on there because it's so lucrative to be in that country world, whatever part of it you're in, artist, yep. songwriter, producer, whatever it may be. Yeah. So before we get to into this record a little bit, I should mention he was embroiled in a, something of a controversy earlier this year, albeit a rather benign controversy. Oh, the tournament thing, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. this is great, actually. You're, this is a great controversy. This is great. I love, this is one of the best controversies. Like, this is a good controversy. Yep. So April of this year... He had a show booked in San Antonio, and he canceled it. And basically, you know, his fans were upset. I should say he did reschedule a makeup date for September. But he sort of abruptly cancels the show. And then it comes out that the reason that he did this was because he wanted to watch Duke in North Carolina in the Final Four. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so, so, like, he, like, basically... And people like his, he upset, like really angered some of his fans. I mean, that's I'm sure. understandably. Yeah. You know, but you know, if you know, like I have friends who are from North Carolina, if you are a hoops fan in North Carolina, like college basketball is like a way of life. It's, it's, yes. it's like a religion, you know? And Duke and North Carolina playing in the final four in potentially Coach K's last game. Like that is Huge. a, it's as far as basketball goes and college basketball goes, that's probably as big as it could possibly be. The first time they've ever played in the final four, like it's enormous. It was enormous. That is hilarious. And so that's how he felt. And he, and even though some people were upset with him, he justified, I'll read a quote. He said, to win that, it was a wild week or two. It was just something I had to be there and had to take my boys I can't recreate Duke and Carolina in the final four. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, hey, you know. So he's That's a hoops great. fan. So, yeah. I mean, you know, 
It's weird, too. That's the one part of the country I would say where college basketball is probably bigger than the NBA. Maybe oh, there in sure. Kentucky, uh, like Louisville, yeah. Lexington, all that. Yep. But yeah, so he's a hoops fan. So we'll get into this record a little bit, go through a few highlights, and then I'm interested <laughs> to hear hear the takes. But Drink In My Hand, that's the first song on the record. Mm-hmm. Early Monday morning to Friday at five, man, I work, 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 but I don't climb, climb, climb. Boss man can shove that overtime up his cane. This song is one of the best iterations of this type of modern country song. Sort of the drinking, taking it easy after a tough week kind of vibe, you know? Well, I think one thing that is similar in these two albums is the impeccable construction and production on the albums, right? Like this is, this song almost seems like it came out of a lab. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like it, I, I, I made that thing about a movie, but it almost seems like a, a song that you would write to go into a movie about a country artist. Like right. that is how, and I, I'm not being insulting about it, being by the numbers with that. Like I think there are, you know, rock songs and hip hop songs that are exactly the same way that I would enjoy, but it does seem perfectly constructed in that way. Yeah, and it was mission accomplished, right? Because yeah. Man, does it deliver on that level? And I have to say, I've heard Jay Joyce's work with other artists. Okay. And you, he really has a range. I mean, I've heard him make records that sound nothing like this, including Amos's record. So the guy is just very versatile, but he knew with this project how to deliver. Which like one of said, Amos's records? Uh, Mountains he... of Sorrow, Rivers of Song. Ah, but that was, Amos definitely had like a flirting with country part of his career, right? Like where he yeah. had, you know, I believe, I mean, it, there's a duet with Willie Nelson and- like, Zach Brown. Zach uh, Brown. Yeah, yeah, like not that it was country, but it, it floated into that world where singer songwriter can go over there. I would say he's not really there anymore, but in no. that in that hole right there, I, I, I would say that it was the most similar at that time. And it's always been a component and maybe he went a little more for it there, but see his- yeah brand of country to me is always rooted more in that classic country kind of sound. It's kind of oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah, American yeah, roots sure. music, yes. which is to say that Jay Joyce is someone who I think can work in that medium as well. But to make it, mm-hmm. so there's that type of record, which is more rooted in that American roots, Americana, classic country kind of sound, like they did yes. some of on that record. But then yep. he can go over to this other thing. It's like you said, it's like constructed in a lab, like yep. calibrated, to be on the country charts, yep. right down to the lyrical content. Yep. That's the one thing I'll say about this album. It's like there are times when it's hard for me to get with the lyrical content. Yes, because uh, it's of, so the, the silly is the wrong phrase, but like it, yeah, it it doesn't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm 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 seeing you. I'm seeing the gears turning there, and seeing you try to work through this, which I was. I knew it was going to happen. It's I knew that just, was going to happen. It, it, it's so... How do you say it? How do you say what okay. you want to say? <laughs> so here's, here's the reason I don't want to say it is that if you were to take a person who enjoys country music and sit them down with a Jay-Z record, 
sit them down with a reasonable doubt or something like that. Right. They, that country person, would listen to that and maybe think the same thing about what that album was trying to say and who that album was for and that it seems phony and, you know, and so on and so forth. So I don't want to come off disrespectful in, in like talking about it and saying like, it sounds silly because if, if you were, and again, if you were somebody who likes hip hop and then listen to a Megadeth record or something or Slayer record, you would say like, what are they doing? Like, what is with the, the pentagrams and rain and blood? And like, this is silly. So if it's not what your life is, it seems so different, but it really does seem like a caricature of country to me. And like, so it's hard to get with the lyrical content because it all seems like it, it comes off to me sometimes at the, and I did enjoy it, but it comes off to me sometimes as silly. So this album to me was not about the lyrics at all. It actually reminded me a little bit of when I'm watching Broadway and right. it takes me like an hour or an hour and a half to like immerse myself in what I'm consuming. And you have to like put your brain all the way in. Cause if you're not all the way in, it's it's difficult to be a little bit in. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it's, I, I can see that parallel. And I think, I guess that's what I appreciate about it. If you just sort of put aside the lyrical, mm-hmm. you know, context of it, which yep. again, it's for a very particular audience, at, which is a huge audience, yep. you know, but if you just listen from a production standpoint, it's really well done. Yeah, absolutely. It's meticulous, the arrangements are, Meticulous, and I actually do think it is tongue in cheek. Like that "Drink in My Hand" song is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's 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 tongue in cheek. It's not meant to be taken that seriously. It's like party you know? music. You yeah, know? Yeah, 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 exactly. And then there's some other like there was one of the tune "Keep On." Yeah, I see you over there making eyes at me like you don't want to get caught. Oh, where'd you get the cowboy on your arm? Where you want me to drop him on? I see you trying to hide that fire inside, but you hold me back's almost gone. Yeah, it's about time I let Cowboy know that I'm gonna take you home. Yes, I keep on looking at me that way, that way. Which just musically had this like really cool kind of almost like funkier kind of groove to it, kind of like a country swagger or something. And then the other number one single other than Drink in My Hand is Springsteen, which I knew we would have to get to this one. Mm. stood out to me because it wasn't as much in the sort of predictable lane like maybe lyrically as some of the other tunes has kind of this like nostalgic feeling kind of a song about how a concert experience kind of played a role in a a romantic relationship I actually want to read a quote from him he said that song was about a love affair that takes place in an amphitheater between two people it didn't happen with Springsteen ironically it happened with another artist so I'm not sure why he didn't just title it the other artist titled Springsteen for some reason but it's got more of a ring to it I mean this was a number one country hit so but you know that one had had sort of a sentimental quality to it uh, I mean taken as a whole that that's what we do like we I think I like the fact that we can parse out okay it may not be 
the kind of thing we gravitate to or resonates with us, but there's always something redeeming. I think when you listen just to the production, mm-hmm. to the way this thing was constructed and then delivers on what it was intended to do, that's pretty pretty significant. Springsteen reminds me, like in a storyteller way, John Cougar Mellencamp or something, or, you know, then there's a lot of rock, a lot of 80s rock music is sort of storyteller, boy meets girl stuff. And that's fun, you know, in a different way than the other stuff is. I, I, I really tried. I thought from a production standpoint and a, like a song standpoint, there's a song called Homeboy. bringing it back because I was listening to Hysteria again, like how pristine the production is and how yeah. big the drums are in that song. And you don't really, and it does have a groove that, you know, that a lot of the other songs don't, I, I think that it sticks out in that way. And I thought like Jesus does is a nice, you know, ballad that actually reminded me of 80s rock a little bit. Every single piece of everything I need. And she knows the man I am. She forgives me when I came. The devil man, no, he don't stand a chance. But she loves me like Jesus does. Well, she too. loves me like, like Jesus does, right? That's yeah. 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 And that one caught, that one kind of, it took me a second to just sort of absorb what was being said there. But you're right. As a well, ballad, it's, there's, it's, it's, Again, a very well-written ballad, you know? Well, and She Loves Me Like Jesus Does is like, it means unconditionally. It's like it's a, it's yeah. a nice turn of phrase, right? Like, like he's obviously an expert in writing this. I, I guess I would say that much like Broadway or now we know I like boy bands, but if you were to go to a show and, re- and have, be able to immerse yourself in it, and mood, I know you don't drink anymore. For me, I would need two drinks to to immerse myself in it. I would probably have a good time and it would probably change my ability to like connect to the music directly. I was just having a hard time, maybe it's my anxiety. I was having a hard time releasing and truly enjoying it. But I thought that those two songs were were good and it is amazing how impeccably like crafted it is. And I, I mean that as a, as, as a huge compliment. I think, I don't, we've never talked about Nickelback or anything, but like there are some, like you listen to those songs and you're like, man, that guy just fucking knows how to do this. You know, right. like even if you don't like it, you hear why it's so undeniable. Molly, did you listen to this? I did listen to this. What are you, a, do you like country at all? I, I like old country music. Um, yeah. But I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I think being at a concert of his would be a great time and super fun. But the She Loves Me Like Jesus does, I just like. <laughs> I Caught you a little bit there, it. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a fun time, though. Like, the guitar was great in it. I had a, I had a fun time listening to it. <laughs> you could you'd tell a guy like this would be prolific in terms of his songwriting for others as well. 
like if he if he wanted to be. I knew, I think I've told the story of this guy, this guy, Tommy Delaney was a, I wonder if he ever made it. I don't know if he did. Tommy Delaney was a record rep that I worked with in my 20s who told me that he was quitting his job to go write songs in Nashville and believe that he had figured out like the, like he thought that there was a formula, you know? And he was like, and once you figure out this formula and become, like you were saying, become one of these people, then it's just, you're like home free afterwards. And I don't, I don't know if he ever made it, but, but you know, it wasn't a, bad plan 20 years ago, you know? And even now, the one thing I've heard from a few friends of mine who've tried that mm-hmm. and become disillusioned by it is that there are some great songwriters who go down there, but unless you can sort of shift your mind to write these kind of songs, like you have to kind of like write outside yourself. If you're someone who didn't come up with this music or didn't, or it's just not inherent to you, you have to almost write as a character. And I think that's hard for some people to write to the concepts that work. You know, right. like, you know, it's difficult like the, to fake. Like they, it's they difficult will to it. fake. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, it seems to me with this though, like Eric Church probably, you know, it's inherent to him, but then he has someone like Jay Joyce who can sort of musically elevate it to a different place. I think that's what seems to be connecting with all three of us is that, Production-wise, there's something here, and you see, you're right, Molly. Some amazing guitar work on this, like some really great moments, like some great, well-constructed solos. So I, 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 I dig it musically. It just, you know, you have to sort of just bracket off some of the lyrical stuff, I guess, if it doesn't connect to you, which the, probably doesn't connect to us on, inherently. You know, the album we did on Carl Andrew Record Club on the Ricky was Margot Price's All American Made which is a, an album that sort of sits in the Americana, you know, homeland sort of country that Dolly Parton or even, uh, you know, Willie Nelson. Like, I, I think it's all in that same thing. And I would put it in the category. It doesn't sound like Amos, but like that is, that is where his country themed stuff would have touched, I think, is that area. I don't know if you know that record. Yeah, and I've heard, and, and she's great. And see, that's the kind of, country that I don't know just to me the kind of thing that she's doing or the the kind of records that Amos have made that are a little more in that sort of roots mm-hmm. Americana direction like that just feels light years away from this from that feels yep. like that feels like a very different thing maybe because it's just more rooted in like you know the classic sounds country the modern country is really just pop music I mean it's just a certain branch of pop music with a twang it's just pop music yeah with a, yeah for sure all right, next album, because I, uh, I have a Ricky coming up at 11, so let's get to, to that. And thank you for the suggestion. It was about time we did country music. You can't ignore it. You can't do a pod that says what you're trying to do is open your, you know, broaden your horizons, and then every week do an album from 1993. Right, <laughs> like we've been doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. At, at a certain point, you have to pick country. So I, uh, I appreciate that. We will pick country again. That said, here's an album I already like. Def Leppard's Hysteria is not only one of my favorite albums of all time, but I consider one of the best albums of all time. It is one of the albums that I will argue with rock fans about, like, 
Metallica's Black album that I will say that it's obvious that the most popular one is the best one. But if you talk to people who, you know, really love this music, a lot of times you'll say, they'll say, oh, Pyromania is better. High and Dry is better. I don't think it is. I think it, I think it's Hysteria, which is an album that, you know, when you find out more about it, set out to be incredibly popular. Like the goal was to be like the rock version of Thriller or something. And that's what it did. Has sold 20 million albums worldwide, 12 million in the US. So and wow. it came out in 87, same year as Appetite for Destruction, Paid in Full from Eric B and Rock Kim, Permanent Vacation. So Def Leppard is now Joe Elliott, Rick Savage, Rick Allen, Phil Collin, and Vivian Campbell. Vivian Campbell was the only member who is in the band now who was not in the band then. It was Steve Clark who was in the band then who passed away in 91. Rick Savage and Joe Elliott met in school in England in 1977, and they ended up playing in a band together called Atomic Mass. That band ended up changing their name to Def Leppard and they changed, was originally spelled the way that Def and Leopard are spelled, but they changed it because of sort of a punk influence that would be part of the a theme of the British metal invasion of the late 70s and early 80s. And as they progressed on, slowly members would drop out and other members would join and would become closer to the the Def Leppard that we know. Steve Clark was the first one to join. And then Rick Allen, the drummer, who is still the drummer, joined the band when he was 15 years old, full-time. So they play a ton of shows. And as I mentioned, this sort of music, which was Def Leppard was classified as a British invasion metal band in the late 70s. Iron Maiden, Diamond Head, Judas Priest had been around for longer, but was still part of that metal, but with like sort of, I guess, the urgency of punk guitars, you know, like not quite as, when you look at metal in the, like the early seventies, it was certainly, you think of Black Sabbath or something, it was certainly like sludgy and slower. And these bands brought everything. I would say urgency is the best way to describe how it sound. So they play, they gain a following, they get signed by Mercury, who puts them on tour with ACDC. And they put out their debut album in 1980 called On Through the Night. As this happened and they started gaining traction, there was a, a bit of a turn on them from the UK as their diehard fans in the UK thought that they were too obsessed with becoming popular in the United States and sort of thought of them as sellouts based on sort of their songwriting and where they were touring. They were touring in the US a lot. And there was, I guess, a famous show that they played at Reading where they had bottles of urine thrown at them um, because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it did not deter them from selling out. So they, <laughs> while they were on tour with ACDC, they got the attention of Mutt Lang who produced their second album, High and Dry. And Mutt Lang had produced ACDC, went on to produce the Cars and Brian Adams. He's Mutt one Lang. of the like most impactful producers, I think. In, in rock time. history. In yeah. rock history. Sort yes. of like what Quincy Jones did with Michael Jackson and yep. some of the other records he made he, in, the, in, the, in the world of rock. I think Mutt Lang is, you know, he, he just an impact producer. Like, he just had a sense of what was going to hit, what was going to work, like, on, on the charts. Yep, he, he figured it out. And, and so that album, this is interesting, too, how rock music has changed a lot. Their debut album comes out in eighty. 
High and Dry comes out in 81. Then Pyromania comes out in 83. There was just like bang, 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 bang. So bringing on the heartbreak from High and Dry started to get traction on MTV. It was sort of noted as the first metal, it's funny to call it metal, but the first metal song ever to really gain traction on MTV. They got a tour opening for Ozzy. And then Mutt Lang produces Pyromania, which made them superstars. Sold 6 million albums. Photograph is on that album. Rock of Ages fooling and it is the last album with pete willis who was original member and then phil collin joined the band after the album was recorded but for the touring so here is where catastrophe strikes the band and i think the turn of events that happened afterwards is really so unbelievable there is a like i think a vh1 documentary or a vh1 biopic on them but i i just i can't get enough of the rick allen car crash content because it's unbelievable to me. So on New Year's Eve in 1984, Rick Allen, the drummer, gets in a car crash and loses his arm. I found a, let me, let me uh, play it. I found a, a cool three minute clip of the guys in the band talking about this. It was New Year's Eve. The last thing that you want is bad news. You know, our manager rang me and told me. Um, it this was is Joe Ellie. And it was, it was like the worst moment of my life, basically. It was a, a very difficult thing to come to terms with. When I finally came round after my accident, I was sort of saying to her, it's okay, you know, things will be fine, don't worry about it. You know, like my parents, I mean, they, they, they took it worse than anybody. And obviously, you know, the, the band, they were, I mean, they just, they, they didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't know whether I'd, 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 I would be able to play again, you know, all, the, all those kinds of things. There was never any question about us, the four of us, sitting down and saying, right, well, we better, gonna, we better find a new drummer. Who are we going to audition never, never even yeah. came up. Because the, 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 the last thing on his mind was the record at that moment. You know, we were more interested in, uh, in just how the guy was and, you know, and just really happy that the guy was at least alive. Yeah. I mean, that was a bonus because he was like, he did, he was very close to death at one stage. The weirdest thing was when me and Steve went to visit him in hospital. He was, uh, he was all bandaged up still, you know, on medication. And we walked in and he went, oh, hey, as though nothing had happened. And we just went, we are going, oh, he's, he's delirious, the boy's sick, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know. And he'd, he'd been practicing on the ed edge of the bed with a pillow. He said, well, I've lost my left arm, so I'm going to use my left foot and left leg, you know, which really seems logical. Uh, and that's exactly what he did. His name is Rick Allen! We call him the Thunder Gun! We were just blown away by his determination straight up. You know, he, he got out of hospital like six weeks and they said he'd be in there for six months. Uh, it was just really very strong. And uh, that was, it was good for all of us as well, you know, it made us have a lot more determination, a lot, lot, of, lot more faith, you know, and just everything. When you're on stage, you don't marvel at his drumming. Because mm. you, 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 you're oblivious to the fact that he's got one on. The fact that he's there behind you and as solid as a rock as ever, you know, that is like the biggest compliment that he's taken for granted. He's just a normal human being. It's just a drummer. So there we go. So he, he gets out of the, the hospital in six weeks. And at the time they were working on 
hysteria. That's when they had begun to work on hysteria. And Rick Allen played on hysteria. They came up with a new sort of electronic drum kit that would allow him to use his feet more. And, you know, like you're not going to get that same sort of power that you would with on a normal drum kit with just one arm, but like just the idea that the guy lost his arm and they all say like, yeah, we never really considered another drummer. Like he was going to figure it out. Mutt Lang was sort of instrumental in helping him out with that as well. And he, they, they got a backup drummer for him for his first gig. And the backup drummer was late this was in 86 and Rick Allen played it by himself. And that was sort of when they knew that it was going to be fine. Played monsters of rock in 86 with Rick Allen as this. So all the time they are writing and recording hysteria where Mutt Lang starts as the producer and then drops out after six months after writing songs with them for six months because he's burned out and can't do it anymore. They hire Jim Steinman, who was a songwriter for Meatloaf. Meatloaf. Yeah. Yeah. Who wanted the album to be like raw and rock and it's exactly what they didn't want to do so they got rid of Steinman and they tried to produce it themselves and by the time that happened Mutt Lang came back their label said it was the most at the time the most expensive album ever produced in the UK Mutt Lang said just to pay Jim Steinman they were going to have to sell two million records just to pay Steinman Phil Collin said it would take 5 million records sold to break even, which is unbelievable. So what, what was, the, do we know what the budget was on that? That's insane. I don't know what the number was, but must have been fucking crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, that's astronomical. So amazingly, Pour Some Sugar On Me was the last song written for the album. sort of as a afterthought. They recorded it very quickly. The first song recorded on the album was Animal. super interesting is that like Pour Some Sugar On Me was the fourth single. It came out a year after the album was released. So the album, which ended up spending six weeks at number one, didn't go number one until a year after it was released. Um, And really set the album on a, like another cycle, right? That's sort of a Thriller-like run. I mean, Thriller spun off six, seven singles, something like that. Yep. And this had seven singles. And what's interesting is it like it it really energized the entire second half of the album cycle, right? Like, cause it went from Pour Some Sugar on Me to Armageddon. It. Love Bites, which ends up being like a number one single for them. Ooh, come on. 
just admire it. The reason I love this album so much, I think the songs are amazing. I think to write songs that are, this was their longest album. It was over an hour long. The songs are not short. They're not like silly little three and a half minute pop songs, right? Like songs like Love Bites or Hysteria or like these are long songs that I, I don't think ever drag. And I think just the sound of it is so pristine. Like the guitar tone and the drums and it is all done so perfectly. And I know we've talked about the difference between what you're able to perform live and what you're able to do recorded, but the recorded thing is forever. And I never have a problem with way produced albums. As long as you can perform a version of them live, I don't think it needs to be, but this is the moment. To say what my favorite songs are on it is impossible because I love all, I, well, I think there's actually two clunkers on the album, which is amazing to say that an album like this has really? a couple clunkers. Yeah, but I think Hysteria. such a fucking awesome song the title track and rocket are my favorites now rocket is funny because you were talking about like sort of cringy lyrics on the <laughs> eric church album like the rocket the lyrics in rocket are silly are like incredibly silly but the song is so massive Like the song is just so big. And it was the final single on the album, came out almost three years after the album came out. I love this album. It, Def Leppard just put out a new record last week, which I, I was not aware of. I went to listen to it. It's actually really good. It's called Diamond Star Halos. It's, it's amazing how much Joe Elliott's voice has changed since then. But you had to be alive at this point to realize how much Pour Some Sugar On Me and Armageddon had owned the music culture at the time. But it was just... It was so big. And if there was a, an ability to be sort of a rock version of Thriller, I don't know that another album ever came as close as this one did. Probably not. I mean, I love this album. This, uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me, that's one of my favorite tunes. And I have like a heavy, heavy nostalgia for that song because that came out, like I lived in Turkey for a year when I was a kid, when I was in third grade. Mm -hmm. And that's where I discovered that song. Like, you know, like we always talk about like certain songs like are tethered to your memories in a very yeah. specific way. So when I lived there, my best friend was this kid, Halil. He lived in my building. Every day when I came home from school, before my mom got home, I would like hang out with him and his brother for a few hours. We'd do homework, watch TV. Now, see, it's, it's strange. That time in Turkey, you didn't get everything there that was in the Western world as far as music, movies, television, mm -hmm. music videos, whatever it was. So, but here and there when things made it through, it was kind of like amplified. The significance of it was amplified. So there was this one music video show we used to watch like every day when I would come home from school. And I remember for weeks, Pour Some Sugar On Me, the video 
was in heavy rotation. And I remember being in their living room, like getting up from the homework. And like as soon as that song came on, it, we would just get amped up. There was like air guitar going, air drums. You know, it just, it's so vivid in my memory, that song. And that's like before, I was like eight years old. So that, that's before I really consciously thought about being a music fan or anything. At that age, you're just kind of reacting to something that, yeah. that resonates with you. So that song, I mean, I probably watched that video every day for weeks, weeks and weeks on end. And just, uh, I remember the thing of the drummer and like, I never even thought about that. I don't even think I noticed that the first. That he only had one arm. Yeah. yeah, and it's just, it's just an incredible story. But when I think of this band, there's something about them that they set themselves aside from other bands and and this album in particular, from other records of that era. It's like, it's got to be the Mutt Lang factor, but there are certain things that you were saying how the songs stretch out but never feel like drawn out. Yeah. That's a real testament to how meticulous their arrangements are. Like every section is purposeful. It's not never meandering. Yeah. It always serves the song in some way. The other thing they have that I that I know you love is the group vocal thing. I mean, oh, there's yeah. a lot of moments where you'll get Joe Elliott's lead, and then everyone else in the band sings. And yeah. I think Mutt Lang sang with them on pretty much all these tracks too, because there's, they had like a kind of like a a vocal group almost that was like a part of every single one of these songs. And then and then the other song that I think kind of almost is unexpected on this one, but I think is a great like sort of social commentary rock song is Gods of War. See, I don't like Gods of War, but you like that Really? Song? I like that one. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. like that it coexists on the same record as Pour Some Sugar On Me. And I, mm-hmm. I, I seem to recall that they actually kind of got some backlash for that song. Oh, did they? I don't because, remember that. Because there was sort possible. of a thing like, you know, this, this is the band that did Pour Some Sugar On Me, or like, they're about fun, rock and roll, you know, the party life, and then they write this heavy song. But when you look at the lyrics, it's a, it's a pretty heavy song. It's basically an anti-war protest song. And I like that it midway through you get this like pivot, but I mean there's so many great. You're right. It's hard to pick a moment. Rocket is a standout. You know one thing that he does that I love. That he does on, on Rocket. He doesn't pour some sugar on me, but on number two is he has that that kind of rhythmic attack in the verses. It's almost like a yeah. like a hip hop swagger to the way he, it's not always sung out. You know, it's like he's really like in the pocket with the drums, but then he also has a key to any great. 80s can we call them a hair band are they a hair band i guess they are well they they were part of the era and they dressed that way during the era i think right. because it made sense though i don't the, the actual bands that i would classify as hair bands were bands that basically were together started their ascent in like 84 to 90 and most of them like had their home on like this was not an la strip band you know, Bon Jovi is an exception. They weren't an LA strip band either. They were a Jersey band, but like th- this was a band that passed through the hairband era, but 
but also came out the other side and was before there. So I, I think they, when you look at how they looked during that era, they were doing what was cool, but I, I wouldn't classify them as a hair band. They sort of transcend that era for sure. I think so, yeah. But, but he has the great, you know, I guess I associate it with hair band, but the great falsetto, like the oh, rock yeah. falsetto, you know? Yep. And yeah. in Love Bites, you get the full, you really see in Love Bites what a great singer he is. Because in that one, he sings out a little more on the verses, and it's a little more understated, a lot of dynamic. And then in the chorus, he really gets up there. You know, and I just know from watching clips of them, I've never seen them live, but he's just a great showman. You know, and I believe they're touring. They're doing a whole stadium tour this summer, I think, with uh, Motley Crue. Yeah. It's Steph Leopard, Motley Crue, Poison, and Joan Jett, I think, which is that Yeah, that, is that was supposed build. to happen in 20, I think. Oh, really? That, that, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a, a arena tour that was or a, a stadium tour that was supposed to happen right as COVID happened. But yeah, they still, and th they're interesting. Like you talk about them being a hair band. They can tour with so many different acts. Like they could tour with Brian Adams. I know they have. They could tour with Journey. They can tour with Motley Crue. They, they can tour with any of those bands. Aerosmith, they, they would work with Aerosmith. Aerosmith. I think of them more in that vein almost, like a band that, came out of the 70s, but I guess hit the bigger commercial heights in kind of in the 80s and onward. You mentioned Pour Some Sugar to Me. That video here was on Dial MTV, which was an everyday countdown show that you would call up and vote for the song that you wanted. Because I remember voting for Fascination Street by The Cure, but it was number one for so long, they retired it and immediately <laughs> it was replaced by Armageddon it immediately, like the next day, the, the day they retire it, it goes right to Armageddon. It, which, it had to be the next Def Leppard song. Yeah, I mean, this. Well, how many records did they, did they sell? This was like one of the biggest. 20 million album. worldwide, 12 million wow. domestically. That'll yeah. never happen again. Those days yeah. are long over. Does anyone even sell a million records anymore? You well, guys will probably know better than me, but. Well, they do this thing. Molly, maybe you understand better than I do. They do this thing where they take streams and they equate it into sales. So when you see sales, you never even know what number, you have to dig deeper into the number that you're, you're actually looking at. Like there's not a lot of artists that actually make sales anymore, but like some of them do, of course, but a lot of it is converting streams into like a quote unquote record sale number. Do you know any? You don't know anything about it's that. It confuses me so much. Yeah, but yeah. I know that vinyls are on the come up again, which is interesting. Yes. Yeah, CDs actually had a, a, a an increase in 2021, which I actually thought about because I've, I've talked about the fact that I hate vinyl. I, I love having the vinyl, but I don't like the experience of listening to it. But I was like, oh, a CD. I could do a CD, but then I just I went back to I'll just buy a T-shirt. I'll buy a T-shirt. <laughs> like right. I don't I don't need the physical music. It's nice to have, but I just I don't need more stuff. You know. I think um, it's a testament though uh, to a certain thing that vinyl is back in a way that like there are still record shops that exist just for that experience. For vinyl. Be yeah, because I don't know where this came from, but like High Fidelity popped into my head that movie. Mm. You know, it's yeah. like. Situations like that where it's, and that was 2000, the boom of the CD era, but I don't think that ever goes away. The fact that it's surged up, the CD thing surprises me though. I, I, I don't know, that seems like a weird thing to like circle, cycle back around. Yeah, I have, I have no idea. Now, when I sent this album in the text, Molly responded with a pour some sugar on me, exclamation <laughs> point. Were you aware of anything else on this album besides that song? 
You might kill me. I literally didn't know who Def Leppard. Like yeah. I didn't know the name. There you go. I knew source of sugar on me. <laughs> but then I was like, oh my god, that's why I was so excited about it. Oh, because you realized what Def Leppard was when you yeah. looked at the album. Did you like the album? Yeah, I really liked the album. I thought it was really like the energy on it is insane. And then I like the six minute songs because I don't. We don't really get that anymore. Super long form songs. So it was really fun. And I, now that I'm talking about it, like really to have a six minute song that isn't, when you think of a, when I think of a successful song of six minutes or longer, I would think of like Paranoid Android or November Rain or, but the, or uh, what was the, uh, Jesus of Suburbia, is that the Green Day one? But like, these are songs that all sort of have like different sections and feel like, like a novel version of a song, but these do not. These just seem like the grandest version of a three-minute pop song, almost. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it feels like every every time the songs stretch out, it feels like an extension of maybe just what they might do live, but it's not it, it's not like wandering off. You know, there's a way that you can have a six-minute song that just feels like solos for the sake of solos. It's just I think every I think there is a level of like orchestration in it, but it doesn't feel that way. Because I just think they're so dialed in. I also think it's a testament to Mutt Lang. One thing about him that I think that he always understood is that, you know, it's like a hit is a is almost in this context. It's not just about the great melody and the great hook, but it's about the production. Like think of the guitar at the start of uh, "Pour Some Sugar on Me." That first riff. Yeah. That's like a hook. Like we talked about this before. Like even when you're in radio, music radio, how like what's the hook? Is it the vocal hook, or is it Sometimes it's like a keyboard part or it's a yep. guitar line. Now, this has all of it. It has lead vocal hook, group vocal hook. It has instrumental hooks. I mean, every every section catches you in some way. Even when it's a solo, it feels like there's some kind of melody or construction there. And if you go to a Def Leppard show, they, do, they don't fuck around with playing the wrong songs. Like you will get, <laughs> they have enough songs for a 90 minute set where every song is fucking awesome like where every song is, is a winner. So I don't, you know, I would imagine they'll play two songs from the new record or something, but, but by and large, you're going to get, you're going to play half this record. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you not like, they have a a staggering number of hits, even after this, you know, Adrenalize, uh, what was that song on Adrenalize? Oh, let's get rock. Have you ever needed? Uh, have you ever needed someone so bad? It was a big hit and like all that stuff. So. I love Def Leppard. They are a. Uh, Jeez, they started in 77 and it is 92 or is it 2022? So what is that? Is that like 45 years on 45 so years that's headlining stadiums? You know, that's crazy. 45 years. Def Leppard's been around 45 years. 
Yeah, you said Joe Elliott sounds. Uh, I haven't really heard him recently. I guess is it well, just raspier? I mean, I know that happens to a lot of rock singers. There's just like you, you when you listen to Hysteria. If you've ever tried to sing a song, you realize how hard what he's like, how much he's pushing what he's doing to get there. Like the, there's not. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he's. Yeah. This is at the very edge of what he's doing. And I, I don't even know, like I've seen them a couple of times and they always sounded good, but like, I wonder if you heard a soundboard recording of it, if he would be nailing all of these notes the way that he's nailing them on the record. So it's just like, he's, he's fucking 60 now, you know? Yeah. So he's just not doing it the same way. And it was really interesting what you said about sort of the syncopated vocals that were almost rap rocky that happen in, it's not even just in Rocket. It's in... Pour, Definitely pour, pour some, some sugar, sugar on, on me. me. A number of other tunes yeah. too. It's in Armageddon. It he is just sort of like talk singing the lyrics with the beat. It's pretty cool, but but like when he's singing those hooks, those are just so fucking. You know, it's it happened to Sebastian Bach too, who's a singer of Skid Row. It's like you hear him now, and it's just like he tries to do the same thing, and it doesn't doesn't. It's tough, which is why more. Robert Plant mm. made a very conscious decision, a smart decision, I think, to not even try to sing like he did when he was much younger on the Zeppelin records. Because he still yeah. sounds great when you hear him. Yeah. He still has a great voice, but he just can't get up and do that like high-pitched, belted falsetto anymore like he used to. So he made a very conscious pivot to say, I'm going to sing in a different way yeah. that works for where I'm at now. And like when you hear some of the stuff he's done with like Alison Krauss, his voice still sounds great, but he's just not belting out falsettos. Like this... These are hard songs to sing, even when you're in your vocal prime. Yeah. I don't understand how these guys don't get completely worn out. I mean, night in, night out trying to sing this way. You know, uh, it's tough. If you would like to send us a suggestion of a record, that, and I, I also think, when does, when does Molly get to pick a record? <laughs> Do we let her pick a record? Yeah. Well, how about next week? Are we doing a record club next week? Yeah. 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 yeah Do you want to pick yeah, a record? Yeah. <laughs> Let's mix right. it up a little bit. I know it'll be something outside of the lane of what like Spike and I will pick. So yeah, good to pick infuse something, something fresh into it. Yeah, pick something I have that you. a chaotic you, pick, but I oh. don't. It might derail the show. Wow, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to hear. Well, we've done some weird stuff. So think it over. Make sure you love it. Don't just pick it to fuck with the show, but make sure you love it. <laughs> As long as you love it, I think it, it <laughs> I do love it. it. I fine. do really, really love this record, but it's okay. crazy. <laughs> well, you can already, she already has decided which one it is. So kind. I if, don't know. I'm not, I don't know if I'll pick it, but it, I'm very interested to hear what you two think about it. Well, I think everything is Gaga, in play. So. <laughs> yeah. What's that? It's by Lady Gaga. Oh. Hmm. Does she have you have heard any? of Art Pop? No. Just have look you? into it. <laughs> okay. Is it an album? Is it is an album. It almost oh, okay. tanked her entire career, but I really, really enjoy it. Hmm. I like her because she's you someone who are... takes chances, you know? She's not afraid yeah. to, kind of like in the same way that David Bowie like wouldn't be afraid to do something that he knew half of his audience would hate. She's someone who like takes those kind of chances. And yeah, I've actually... It's popular now, so... Oh, it is? It's like had a resurgence, and it like it was topping sales on the iTunes chart this year, but... It was so bad when it came out. <laughs> Reminds me of the, did we do Miley and her dead pets? We did, right? Yeah, the we one did. that Flaming Lips uh, yeah. produced, which was great. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you can decide, take overnight to decide if that's the one you want to do. I've never heard it. And Moot, Moot, you've never heard it, right? Um, I mean, maybe I've heard a song or two, but I've never like done the deep dive into the... Into okay. the um, when did that come out? That was like a... I think it was it was either 2011 or 2012. I went to the their concert, but it was... I was really young, like in high school, so... Let's see, 2013. 2013. 2013. Yeah. And then if you, as a listener, would like to suggest an album, do it on Twitter, at CLRCpod, on our website... CarlAndrewRecordClub.com or in the Apple Podcast Reviews. Uh, leave us five stars and leave the album in there. Until next time, we'll talk to you then. Stay free, my goose. <laughs> <laughs>